0: Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to Insurance Uncovered. Now in Season 5 of NAMIC's podcast, we'll be featuring all new insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and on this episode of the podcast, we're uncovering bad faith legislation, how a new law could negatively impact insurers and policyholders in New Jersey, plus a first for automated driving systems the one charged in a deadly 2019 crash involving autopilot. And Dr. Bob Hartwig's economic outlook. The South Carolina University Risk Management Director shares his thoughts on what areas insurers should focus in 2022. But first, in the news, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy has signed a new bill into law despite major industry opposition. While proponents of the New Jersey Insurance Fair Conduct Act say it will make the auto insurance claims process more equitable for policyholders, business and industry groups have a different perspective, and they've warned the bill instead will actually raise premiums. Opponents generated more than 75,000 letters to the governor urging him to veto the measure. Despite that large-scale industry effort, Murphy signed the bill on January 18th. The new law, which is effective immediately, dramatically lowers the standard to prove bad faith against insurers. In its letter to the governor, NAMIC argued that the bill is a radical departure from well-established public policy in New Jersey and would create, quote, an irresponsibly low bad faith standard. NAMIC and other opponents believe the new law will force insurers to settle claims for higher amounts to avoid litigation ultimately driving up premiums for all New Jersey drivers. For the first time, criminal charges have been filed against a driver using an assisted driving system. The Associated Press reports that California prosecutors brought vehicle manslaughter charges against the driver of a Tesla that struck a car and killed two people in 2019 while the autopilot system was engaged. The Model S was reportedly speeding as it exited the freeway, ran a red light, and hit a Honda Civic in an intersection, resulting in the death of two passengers in the Honda. Tesla has not been charged in this criminal case. The company's traffic light and stop sign control feature was not available prior to 2020, and the owner's manual provides that, quote, it is the driver's responsibility to determine whether to stop or continue through an intersection. The family of the victims has filed a civil action, which could yet include allegations of responsibility against Tesla. The Insurance Institute for Highway Safety announced new ratings program that will evaluate the safeguards used in vehicles with partial automation to help drivers stay focused. While most partial automation systems have some safeguards already in place, the IIHS said that none of them meet all the pending criteria it will use for rating. To earn a good rating, systems should use multiple types of alerts to quickly remind the driver to look at the road and return their hands to the wheel when they've looked elsewhere or left the steering wheel unattended for too long. If the driver fails to respond, IIHS said the system would slow the vehicle to a crawl or stop, as well as notify a manufacturer concierge who can call emergency services if necessary. Once this occurs, the driver should be locked out of the assist system for the remainder of the drive until the engine is switched off and started again. Well, New Year's resolutions aren't only reserved for individuals. Businesses also take this time of year to consider scenarios that may threaten or enable their success. And the insurance industry is no different. As in other sectors, the COVID-19 outbreak caused huge amounts of uncertainty and confusion in the risk management and insurance field. On today's Unscripted, NAMIC CEO Neil Aldrich sits down with South Carolina University's Dr. Bob Hartwig to reflect on how the industry has fared and the challenges that still lie
1: ahead. Today, we have a familiar guest joining us on the Insurance Unscripted section of the podcast, and that's the University of South Carolina's Dr. Bob Hartwig. Many of you know Bob, of course, from his work with the Triple I and Speaking to industry events for 20 plus years as an economist and and leader in the industry and someone that's familiar to everyone. You've had him, you've heard him on our own podcast here at NAMIC over the years as well. We checked him with him about a year ago uh, about the pandemic, uh, and then again uh, to sort of see how insurers were far, faring through it all. And so today we thought, here we are, nearly two years in to the seemingly unending event of the pandemic. Um, However, you may define that. Uh, we thought it'd be wise to check in with Bob and kind of get his views on on the industry and and how things are going for us here. So, Bob, thanks for joining us today. Hey,
2: pleasure to be here, Neil.
1: So, last year when you joined us on the podcast, you 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 sort of predicted that our economy, in many ways, would probably recover fairly quickly from the COVID experience. That was a year ago, uh, and here we are. And turned out you were you were generally right on that. Uh, we saw the shortest recession in history. Some maybe even wonder if it was one. Uh, and then here we are starting another new year in 2022. Uh, now we see kind of a different sort of economic situation, and that's this, the rising inflation that we see throughout nearly all segments of the economy. So, so what do you see? How did, is this inflation here with us for a while? Are you in that this is a transitory camp? Kind of situation is it? Is it real? What's its effect on the industry? Just your thoughts on the inflation we're seeing now? Yeah,
2: sure, Neil. Glad to talk about uh, these things. And, and you're right. Well, first of all, thank you for acknowledging that I was right a year ago. Economists love to hear that uh, that our predictions were right. And in fact, uh, if anything, I was maybe too right, in the sense that uh, the the recovery was even more robust. Uh, than anybody, including myself, had anticipated. Now, I'd always talked about a V-shaped recovery, V standing for vaccine. Uh, we could always see the light at the end of that tunnel. Uh, but as it turns out, um, uh, you know, over the course of a year, beginning in March of 2020 through March of 2021, uh, we had an enormous amount of economic stimulus. About $6 trillion were literally shoveled into the pockets of the bank accounts of millions of American families and businesses. Uh, another $8 trillion or so all around the world. Uh, and economists are the least surprised people on earth to, uh, to uh, when it comes to seeing that if you shovel that much money into people's pockets and tell them to sit in, sit in their homes and spend it, that this is going to result in too much money chasing too few goods, and that is the very definition of inflation. So there we have it. Um, so, uh, and so it's going to take a while to, to work these kinks out of the system. Uh, in terms of this debate about whether inflation is transitory or not, you know, Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Jerome Powell said maybe we should retire that term, and I think only because of the fact that when many people think about transitory, they thought it would be over in a month or two. Um, uh, we're talking about a year or two uh, for inflation to subside. Now, I still put that in the transitory camp, quite frankly, in the greater scheme of economic things, uh, and uh, as, as an economist, I, look to, I like to look at the broad scopes of, scope of history, both here in the United States and abroad. And uh, I do see, so, so the numbers have just literally come in, um, in uh, today, in fact, the day we're recording this podcast, that uh, we did see 7% year-over-year uh, inflation numbers from December uh, 2021 back to December 2020. For the full year of 2021, it was 5.8%. Now, the December-over-December December numbers were the worst we had seen since 1982, almost 40 years ago. And that's where the headlines are being written. Uh, the reality of it is is that the 5.8 percent peak that we at uh, the 5.8 percent number we saw for the full year of 2021 is probably the peak um, and uh, we will begin to see those inflation numbers uh, uh basically slow down as we move uh, particularly into the second half of 2022 um, so that's that's good news but it's going to take uh, through 2023 before these uh, inflation numbers will will truly normalize uh, we'll see see that normalization be expedited by, by a reserve indicating that in March it's going to begin to hike interest rates, it's going to dial back its monetary stimulus through uh, uh, reduced bond purchases and so forth. The markets are reading this, um, uh, taking it really in stride. And in fact, uh, the day that the, uh, the inflation numbers came out, showing the highest numbers since 1982, the, the stock markets rose. Um, and uh, the day before, it seemed just about inevitable that Jerome Powell will be reinstated for another term, as Fed chief. So the good news is is that all this information has been digested well by the markets. The markets understand what is happening. And you look at longer-term interest rates, and while they've gone up a bit, they are by no means indicating inflationary expectations that are out of control. Um, So uh, I think what many people do is they look back at the last bout of inflation in this country back in the early 1980s and the 1970s, where not only did we had high inflation, but we had unemployment rates that were soaring into the double digits. And they lasted for many years. The inflation uh, lasted for many years and required the Fed uh, to essentially provoke two recessions to wring that inflation out of the system. Uh, they were also provoked by an extraordinary dependence on foreign, foreign oil. Uh, uh, OPEC uh, was able to effectively uh, provoke some of these recessions as well. So the situation is just, uh, there are almost no similarities between now and and 40 years ago, despite what you may be hearing in the media. So I'm quite confident that once the supply chain kinks are worked out, and in fact, there's a lot of evidence that it is happening right now, and that we work through our Omicron wave, which is causing some problems in terms of staffing up uh, uh, factories and and, and trucks and ships and so forth. uh, We'll get past this. In terms of the inflationary impacts on the insurers themselves, um, very interesting in the most recent inflation report, one of the very few major economic sectors that actually showed a decline in in price uh, uh, December over December was actually personal auto insurance, which was down 1.5%, whereas the overall index was up about 7%. Um, and what that is indicating, of course, is two things that personal auto is kind of a lagging indicator that the rates we are seeing today are a function of the depressed frequency of claims that we saw during the pandemic, which did carry over into 2021. Um, uh, and, and, and the fact that auto insurance truly is responsive uh, to the actual uh, claiming activity that exists out there. Now, going forward, of course we all know that the price of uh, vehicle parts uh, used vehicles new vehicles uh, uh rental vehicles have all risen dramatically in the past few months so ultimately auto insurance rates are going to uh, are going to have to reflect that so there is the potential for a short-term uh, rate inadequacy in in personal auto uh there is a similar short-term rate inadequacy uh likely or possible in some um, property lines, which have, of course, been hit hard by near-record catastrophe activity. Uh, Munich just came out with the numbers suggesting that uh, insured cat losses in the U.S. in 2021 were among the highest ever at about $86 billion. Hurricane Ida leading the way. Uh, big freeze in Texas earlier in the year, also a major event. Um, with all of these events, we saw increased costs associated with everything from, from lumber to nails to paint uh, to PVC piping, I mean, you name it. So all of these are going to have to be reflected in costs. It just takes a while for insurers to see this. So this will certainly eat into margins into margins late last year and into early 2022. But again, uh, over time, I think that insurers were used to, over the span of years, riding out these waves and ebbs and flows in commodity prices, for instance, um, or the cost of vehicles. Uh, the way that insurance works is it does not the prices do not typically adjust instantaneously, particularly in the personal line side or heavily regulated lines like workers' compensation. The good news is we've not seen a huge acceleration in um, medical claim severities, for instance, uh, say in workers' compensation associated with COVID. Uh, that's that's good news, and um, I'm not really expecting an explosion in, in costs there as well. So. Certainly, we could see increases as a result of social inflation, which is another issue uh, associated with uh, uh, runaway litigation in the United States. But that is an entirely separate problem that that predates the pandemic. So, bottom line is uh, I think the industry will ride out this uh, uh, inflationary wave uh, without any major uh, issues, Um, nothing like we faced back in the 1970s. Uh, which was a, in early 80s, which was a very difficult time for the industry, uh, where rate inadequacy was rampant, uh, residual markets in auto and workers' compensation uh, rose to uh, record market shares, and uh, was also a period of, of rampant social inflation, which uh, w- which actually caused the insolvency of, of some insurers uh, and many of their corporate clients during that period of time.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, in some ways, the industry after that period spent the next you know 25 years trying to undo the damage that was done in today residual markets are minuscule and, and it's some questioning whether you even need them and it's all really a testament to the health of the marketplace in the industry broadly speaking and I share your view I don't believe that I think the insurers are it's uh, well positioned to ride this out it's interesting I'm old enough to remember and been around here long enough to remember back in the early days of some of the uh, natural disaster debates, and when we used to talk about an, uh, an event that would be too large for the industry to handle, and we used to talk about a hundred billion dollar event being something that you know the industry would struggle to, and here you are talking about perhaps getting into the low 80s this year, and the industry seems to be dealing with that okay. Uh, so maybe we need to rethink, you know, the durability and stability of our industry as well. Well, I think that uh, anybody who
2: doubts that this industry is strong, stable, sound, and secure um, is is betting on the wrong side of history. Uh, the reality of it is is that this this industry has rode out rec- record catastrophe activity uh, over the past decade or so, and in fact. Going back to the 1980s, uh, average annual insured catastrophe losses starting in the 80s were about $5 billion a year, and then if you adjust for inflation um, and then look at the actual losses, uh, they were about $15 billion a year on average in the 90s, uh, $25 billion in the 2000s, and $35 billion in the most recent decade, and we are absolutely on track certainly in the 2020s, to hit $45 billion or $50 billion a year as an average uh, an- annual uh, figure, even after adjusting for inflation. Um, so the good news there is insurers um, have a much better understanding of catastrophe management than they did 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, there is there are, uh, there's ample capacity flowing in uh, a- across the world into the primary and into the reinsurance sector, as well as into the capital markets. Uh, we had record catastrophe bond issuance last year, uh, despite all the turmoil in the financial markets. So, again, that's, um, that's a, a testimony to the industry that investors feel that these risks can be modeled uh, to the extent that they feel confident that, over the long run, they can make a risk appropriate rate of return. Uh, and at the end of the day, that's what we need in order to be able to do what we've always done for centuries, and that is... sort of be uh, that that grease or that oil that helps the economy grow, not just here, uh, but on an international basis.
1: Yeah, no doubt. and In spite of the uh, common refrain from the industry critics about uh, various issues that relates to auto insurance or their treatment of customers, uh, that durability and stability seems to be really the hallmark and insurers tend to end up on the right side of these of these questions no doubt uh, clearly you know inflation if it were to get worse obviously it could be worse but uh, you know if your your view of things this is a, a year we're a year into a two-year almost a year into a two-year phenomenon then we probably are going to be okay on the other side of it um, if that if that indeed holds out i hope again you're right about that i don't think any of us want to relive the uh, late 70s early 80s inflation and interest rate uh, circus that that was.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But I would say that we're in a probably a perpetual cycle now of seeing catastrophe losses that will be on an average annual basis of fifty billion dollars and above. Uh, I think this industry is resigned to that fact and has adjusted to that fact and and in fact does have the capital. Uh, to uh, be able to withstand losses of that magnitude, essentially continuously, and also increasing indefinitely into the future, um, that ultimately is far more costly than a uh, two-three year uh, bout with inflation. So um, I think we have to, you know, see the 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 forest through the trees here. Standing right in front of us are a couple of tall inflation trees. Uh, all around us uh, are our our entire mountain ranges of Uh, uh, of (laughs) rising uh, losses associated with not just natural catastrophes, but again, the social inflation issues and and, and some other issues as well. Yeah,
1: No no doubt. And the auto insurance issues of lagging rates. I mean, everybody knows that fact is with us um, and likely going to be worsened over time. And, you know, the industry has a real chance. We've made some progress on our mitigation and resilience sort of issues that we've tried to part of the industry's answer to the rising catastrophe losses is that we have to be better at resilience and better at mitigation. Usually that is a debate that no one wants to listen to um, and we've been sort of only marginally successful in some regards there, but I do think that tide is beginning to turn. I think we're, we're, better, we're better positioned now as an industry and, and there's some, some real evidence out there that perhaps some of that is beginning to, to, to take shape. But, you know, while we're in, as a nation, as long as we are insistent on building things where the catastrophes are, we are going to have catastrophe losses. Um, that's just the reality that we're going to face.
2: Well, exactly, and let's just take a look at the way the economy is growing today and look at the most recent numbers from, say, the Census Bureau. Uh, We see a lot of states, Midwest and Northeast, emptying out, and overwhelmingly, the population is growing um, in places like Florida, Texas, uh, the Carolinas, and other catastrophe-prone states. Really, uh, there are relatively few uh, uh, states that aren't prone to many catastrophes that are growing uh, to any significant extent. So, uh, but insurers are up up for that challenge. Uh, That's where the exposure growth is going to be. Um, And in fact, uh, I I don't think that this industry is one that's gonna run away from the risk. Uh, The industry is one that is well positioned again to uh, help the United States, to help the world grow uh, despite these uh, particular challenges. And that is what we do. Um, without risk, we don't exist. Without our ability to to to, to measure and to quantify the price risk, we don't exist. We don't provide any value whatsoever. Uh, and and to the extent that the that uh, the price of risk is reflective of the actual loss that could be expected, in other words, rates aren't suppressed. Uh, we are doing um, we are doing states, counties, municipalities, uh, the country as a whole, a great service in terms of giving an actual signal about what the likely cost is of living in a coastal area or living in an area that's prone to wildfire or flooding. So it's important that, um, that we continue to provide that information as a part of virtually every economic transaction that is going to occur in these areas.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, so let's, one, one last topic, something that is on the minds. I know a lot of our member company CEOs, it's on my mind running NAMIC, and, and, and that is the labor market issues. We see low unemployment rates again, um, but we have such the tail after tail, I've lived it here, of we have these great jobs that nobody is applying to fill. Um, it's just this, you know, refrain that really is becoming a chorus across the industry. And we, we all know, we've talked about for years, we have an aging employee base and people are retiring. And, and we've, we've known about that. But this particular market we're in at the moment seems to have this real conundrum of just the difficulty in simply finding people that are interested in these great jobs. Um, any thoughts on that? And, you know, what's your kind of view on, on those Situ- well,
2: situation. Uh, no matter where you are in the country today, you're going to see uh, help wanted signs everywhere. So the getting that talent uh, into the insurance industry is a challenge that we share with uh, with with pretty much every other industry that that that's out there. So, uh, you know, some sectors of the economy are, are working the angle of simply trying to raise wages. Uh, some are improving benefits. Some are are uh, highlighting the fact that uh, you know, remote work is here to stay and, and you can keep that benefit for as long as you want, so increased flexibility there. Uh, but we have some other fundamental structural problems here in the sense that, yes, our workforce in this industry is somewhat older than, than average. That automatically makes us more vulnerable to what um, you know, many are calling you know, the great retirement uh, nowadays. And, and so more and more people are simply heading for the exits, particularly those who are 55 and above, who might have continued to work for another few years. Uh, So we're more vulnerable to that. Um, uh, But when I sit here at the other end of the equation, um, where we are producing talent that goes into the insurance world, uh, I'm looking at a very hot market right now for our students. Obviously, it cooled down uh, in the early stages of, of COVID. It was a very disruptive period for students who were graduating during that period of time. But as we're beginning this semester, uh, we're we're looking at strong hiring activity on the part of uh, commercial insurers, uh, personal lines insurers, and and we also produce graduates uh, more broadly in the field of risk management who might go and become, say, underwriters in banking institutions or who who might be looking at um, risk management issues for financial institutions overall working for some of the big uh, consulting firms, uh, those sorts of things, or go work at a government enterprise. Um, But... uh, what we find is that when students are exposed to the concept of risk management and insurance, they may be just taking the class as an elective. Uh, many of them, light bulbs go off in their head. They never before considered or even understood that there were opportunities here uh, that uh, to work on uh, just a wide variety of very, very important issues uh, to our economy or just potentially interest to them and, and in every corner of the country. Uh, and also, for some students who are international, who are interested in international opportunities, uh, opportunities to work with multinational insurers, reinsurers, and brokers, uh, this careers can take you all over the world. That's very, very exciting to many students. So we, we need to do a better job of articulating that. But I, I will say the number one tip that I give anybody looking to recruit students is create internship opportunities. Because without fail, the top students, uh, they have a job the day they walk in on the first day of their senior year. <laughs> they already have signed their contract. That's because they've already had one or two successful internships with the company, and that company understands uh, that we are not going to let this person who we just invested two summers in you know walk out the door after we've done training. So I, I would say t- companies that do not have a, a robust uh, internship program are, are at a disadvantage right now. Uh, the way that you get the hook into the students is when, you know, they're sophomores and juniors and they're really starting to think about and be worried about what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. Be their answer, you know, pick up the phone and, um, and, and get, get hooked up with them. We work with a lot of great NAMIC members, Neil, uh, who, who understand that. Uh, I've got a couple who are interviewing with some of your members right now. And each and every year, uh, hire uh, some of our students as interns and then as full-time student, uh, full-time um, professionals uh, later on. Very often in underwriting capacities or claims capacities, but also, you know, in actuarial context and, and, and others as well. And I, I can't tell you, Neil, how excited people are uh, about signing on to, uh, you know, some companies that, you know, we, we know about the staying power of mutuals. I've got a couple students now who are signing on with a mutual that's 127 years old. Okay. Not many not many people who are graduating uh, today in any discipline can say they're signing on with an organization that has that kind of a track record. Yep,
1: you're right. And they'll be here 127 years from now, most likely.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: You know, the, the management
2: of these companies, as I've always said, they look at themselves as stewards of the organization. Yeah. They're there to make the organization even better than it was when they took over, uh, but it, it's, it's not theirs. Uh, they understand that, you know, it belongs to the policyholders,
1: right? Sure. And they're going to pass that
2: along to the next generation of management and the next generation of policyholders.
1: That's that's great. Well, Bob, listen, thanks for your time today, and thanks for every day uh, trying to help uh, educate everybody around the industry about how the industry works, and, and thanks for cranking out students that – Uh, Become employees at NAMIC member companies, and hopefully, you get more of them uh, headed our direction because we certainly need them and the industry needs them. But uh, for everybody listening, obviously, you know, Bob is a great asset for the industry, an evangelist for the strength of the industry, and somebody that we're all familiar with and thank for his years of work uh, around the industry as well. So, Bob, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Anytime, Neil.
0: And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We'll be back again on February 9th with more insurance news and interviews, including a look at the great resignation and the importance of talent retention. In the meantime, if there's a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, don't hesitate to let us know. You can send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.